now we stand in the presence of his glory, even as we are here before the word of the living God. And this morning, I would invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter two. Several of you have asked if I would speak more about the Magi and a little bit on this text. Some of you who have been in this church for several years have heard some of these things, but perhaps there will be some that are new. And every time you approach a text, you will see new things. And I trust that will be the case this morning. I'm going to treat this a little bit differently than the way I would typically treat a passage in a verse by verse expository manner. But rather this morning, I'm going to back off the text a little bit and gaze at the overall theme of the story. You know, sometimes uh, familiarity can breed neglect. And I believe there's much more in this text than at first glance. It's a very familiar text, but we would like to look at it very closely this morning and yet in a more general way. Certainly, this is a true historical account, uh, but it is also a beautiful picture of how people throughout redemptive history have responded to Christ and how they will continue to respond. Follow along as I read the text, beginning in verse one of Matthew, chapter two. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod, the king, behold, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. And when Herod, the king heard it, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he began to inquire of them where the Christ was to be born. And they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi. And ascertained from them the time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and make careful search for the child. And when you have found him, report to me that I, too, may come and worship him. And having heard the king, they went their way. And lo, the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And they came into the house and saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. And opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed for their own country by another way. Three categories of people are portrayed in this text. The first category would be symbolized by Herod, the king. And I would describe them as the wealthy political and social elite of every society whose pride and selfish ambition dominate every thought, dominate every action. Those people that love to worship themselves, not Christ. They have no need to repent of sin because they don't see that. They don't have any use for that type of thinking. 
And certainly they would refuse to submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ. In fact, they find Jesus Christ utterly contemptible. The second group of people would be symbolized by the chief priests and the scribes. This group of people would be categorized as the religious hypocrites of a society, the spiritually elite of any given culture, those people who have convinced themselves of their own self-righteousness and have aligned themselves with some kind of a religious system whereby they can have their self-deception reinforced, a system where they believe they can earn their way to paradise through a myriad of different religious rituals and good deeds. And again, they have no desire to know the Lord Jesus Christ, much less confess him as Savior and as Lord. And then the third group, of course, would be the true worshipers. Those who have seen the depths of their own sin, they're desperate, therefore, for a Savior And they recognize who Christ is and they will go to any length to serve him and to worship him. And, of course, this is symbolized by the Magi. Let me give you the context. And you all know the story, but I think it's worthwhile to remind us all of it, especially once a year. In the providence of God, Caesar Augustus of Rome had decreed that all the world should be registered for taxation, at least all of the Roman world. And the Jewish promised land had been previously divided into sections according to tribe. And the Jews kept scrupulous genealogical records so they knew precisely where their family was from. They knew precisely what land belonged to them. In fact, according to Jewish law, every 50 years, the land would always revert back to the original owners in a family. So Mary and Joseph knew that they were of the lineage of David. And they knew that, therefore, their family's hometown and the region from which they had descended was in Bethlehem. The Jews pronounce it Bethlehem, and it means house of bread. And so naturally, they went back to that region, realizing that on all significant situations, especially to come and to be registered for Rome, they needed to return to their hometown. And no doubt they looked forward to having a a time of fellowship with some of their family members as well. By the way, as a footnote, today Bethlehem, which is about five and a half miles outside of Jerusalem, Consists of about 27,000 people, uh, approximately half of them are Muslim. If you go there today, you will find Israeli checkpoints and armed guards with their fingers on the trigger. Lots of little poverty-stricken shops selling hand-carved nativity sets. You'll see the Church of the Nativity, which is supposedly placed upon the place where Jesus was born, even though they don't know that for sure. And if you go in that church, you will see the candles and incense and all kinds of bizarre shrines. It's really rather creepy. And everywhere you look in Bethlehem, you will see reminders of apostate religious systems. You will see Roman Catholic priests and nuns and Eastern Orthodox and Greek Orthodox priests uh, uh, walking around, uh, all of them wearing their own unique uh, 
peculiar, grotesque garbs that would hopefully draw attention to their superior spirituality. And it is also here in Bethlehem that the prophet Muhammad supposedly prayed on his way to Jerusalem. He is reported as having said, and I quote, when I was taken on the midnight journey to Jerusalem, Gabriel took me to Bethlehem saying, alight and pray to Rakas, for here is the birthplace of your brother Jesus. Peace be upon him. And then I was taken to the rock. And so naturally, this is a bit of a shrine for the Islamic religion as well. Now, remember, Caesar Augustus was reigning at this time of Jesus' birth. And it's interesting that his real name was Gaius Octavius. And he was all often called Octavian, if you read in the history books. Augustus was merely a title that he had acquired, which meant majestic one, the highly honored one. And I always find these things a bit humorous because little did the majestic one realize that he was merely a puppet in the hands of a sovereign God, the true majestic one. While he thought that his edict to have people come and to be registered was an independent act of his own sovereignty. In fact, what he was unwittingly doing is responding to a sovereign God who providentially was working in his life to accomplish the eternal purposes of the living God and to fulfill a piece of prophecy in Micah 5 verse 2, where we read, but you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. So in other words, the eternally existent Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, would be born precisely when and where God originally intended it to occur. Friends, may I remind you, you can rest assured that God is orchestrating every event in history to accomplish his eternal purposes. Even today, God orchestrates history by manipulating world leaders to do his bidding and allowing Satan to rule the world as an unwitting pawn on a divine chessboard. Because all things are working together for good to them that love God and are called according to his purposes. Whether they are kings or queens or presidents or prime ministers, they may think they are in charge, but ultimately they too are mere puppets controlled by a sovereign God who has decreed all things after the counsel of his will. So in the story, the true historical story of the birth of Christ, we see two very godly young teenagers making a rather long journey. Roughly 70 miles. By the way, ladies, how would you like to go about 70 miles, nine months pregnant, riding a donkey? I don't want to hear any more complaining when you're pregnant, okay? And so they make their way to this humble and very primitive shelter. We don't know much about it. And, they, and uh, the Lord Jesus is, is born in a very smelly stable which is a fitting metaphor for a later scene where that same Savior would bear the stench of sin for the elect on the cross of Calvary. Now, many months later, Joseph and Mary are in a house. No doubt they decided to stay in Bethlehem. 
probably to avoid having to explain more about this baby and so on back in their home region. And so the Magi from the east now see the austere. We've gone over that before, which is no doubt a a sign of the brilliant Shekinah glory of God that we've seen all throughout history. Not a star as we would think about it, but a blazing forth, as the term would indicate, So they saw the resplendent light of the glory of God in the east, and they knew precisely what it meant, as you will understand in a moment. And they come now to Bethlehem to worship the king. And by the way, the whole theme of Matthew's gospel is Christ as the sovereign king. And so many of the narratives that we read in Matthew point to that reality. Now, frankly, when it comes to the to the Magi, we don't know a lot about them. But um, we see that, as many would call them and Scripture would call them, they, they would be wise men. But we can piece together some fascinating pieces uh, about, from, from history, from the Bible, especially from the book of Daniel and other historians outside of the Bible, um, that would help us understand who the Magi really were. And I want to give you this before we look a little bit more specifically to some practical Issues in this text, the wise men or the magi is really a a term magi that is an untranslatable word. And it's really a name for a certain tribe of people. And the best translation of the word magi is 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 that of wise men. That's good. And they were really a priestly line of people from among the ancient Medes. They were very skilled with astronomy the science of astronomy, and with the superstition of astrology, uh, a practice that has always been condemned by God, even though we continue to see it even today. For example, you can go see your astrological sign in the newspaper and so on. They were basically occultists. They were skilled in the practice of divination and sorcery. And the word magi has been corrupted throughout history and is now... Magic or magician, a word uh, synonymous with the concept of a sorcerer. Now, these magi rose to great power through their cultic astrological abilities, through their sorcery, their divination, their astronomy. Undoubtedly, many of them were demonically possessed and had uh, incredible powers. Uh, And they became advisors to the royalty of the East. Thus, they were called wise men. In fact, the wisdom of the Magi was called the law of the Medes and the Persians. We read about that in Esther 1, 19 and Daniel 6 and so on. And they had a very special uh, gift of dream interpretation. In fact, you may recall in Jeremiah 39, in verses 3 and 13, we read about a person by the name of Nergal Sarezer, the Rab Mag, which means the chief Magi who was in the court of Nebuchadnezzar. And these were uh, official advisors to the king. And you might recall also that a young 15 year old boy had dealings with the Magi, young man by the name of Daniel. He was kidnapped from uh, the royal family in Judah, along with three of his friends And they were all deported to Babylon to be brainwashed so that they could uh, assimilate into the Babylonian culture and help them understand the Jewish culture. 
And uh, they were all required to assist with all of the new Jewish prisoners in exile. And in Daniel 2, we can read about how Daniel rose to become a statement, statesman in Nebuchadnezzar's court. And he was surrounded by Magi, by the Chaldeans, which is very likely another name for the Magi. And many of these, of course, were magicians. We see in Daniel 2, 27. And in Daniel 4 and verse 7, we read about how that they couldn't interpret the dream of Nebuchadnezzar. You remember the story. But Daniel could interpret the dream. And Nebuchadnezzar made him master over the Magi. And in chapter 2, verse 24, we read how Daniel pleaded to the king not to destroy the wise men of Babylon. And so, undoubtedly, he endeared himself to these people and became a bit of a savior to them down through the years. And undoubtedly as well, he taught them much about Jehovah God and the coming Messiah and much about the Old Testament prophecy, as well as would have many of the godly saints left in the diaspora or the dispersion there in Babylon. Now, the Magi were very powerful. In fact, no Persian was ever allowed to become king except under two conditions. Number one, they had to master the scientific and religious practices and disciplines of the Magi. They had to learn astronomy, math, agriculture, architecture, natural history, and so on. But secondly, they had to be approved and crowned by the Magi. In fact, all of the judicial offices, as well as the kingly offices, were controlled by the Magi. Even the royal bench of judges were chosen by the Magi. So what we see... Bottom line is that the Magi were kingmakers. Are you beginning to see what God might be up to here? And thus, 600 years before King Jesus was born, a sovereign God was setting the stage for kingmakers to come from the east to crown the king of kings. Now, the context of Matthew 2. Rome was very scared of the eastern empire. They were a mysterious and barbaric people across the Mediterranean Sea. And across the Arabian desert loomed the great Parthian Empire, the land of the Medes and the Persians and Babylon. And these people were violent enemies of Rome. In fact, they fought in 63 B.C., 55 B.C., and 40 B.C. And guess where they always fought? In the land of of Palestine, there along the coast of the Mediterranean, the land of Israel and Syria and Jordan. In fact, Israel was basically a no man's land between two great powers. Now, the Romans despised and feared the Magi, these sorcerers, these astrologers. In fact, Philo, who was a Jewish philosopher from Alexandria, um, Philo of Rome said, and I quote, they are vipers, they are scorpions, and they are venomous creatures. But at the time of Christ's birth, there was a ruling body in the eastern Parthian Persian Empire called the Magistoni, and that was totally composed of magi, and their duty was basically to make kings. Now, interestingly enough, the king that they had at this time was a loser with a capital L. 
His name was Phraates the fourth. With that kind of a name, what would you expect? Phraates the fourth. And he had been deposed. So they were looking for a new king for the Eastern Empire. And certainly they had their heart set on conquering Rome. Now, it's fascinating when you look at history in light of Scripture. And again, you see more of what God is up to. It's fascinating to watch how God in his providence works out history. With all this context, imagine the scene now that Matthew describes. You have in Herod an insanely jealous king. The people hate him. And suddenly he discovers that the Persian kingmakers have arrived. What do you think he's going to think? He's going to be terrified. And that's exactly what the text tells us, that he was troubled. It literally means he was extremely agitated to the point of having a panic attack. So these kingmakers come into town. Now, we don't know for sure how many there were. I know a lot of people try to indicate there were three of them, but other historical accounts indicate that there were probably many more of them and that they probably weren't on camels, but on Persian steeds with a large entourage of soldiers. Some indicate that there may have been as many, many as a thousand of the mounted Persian cavalry with them. And if we look back at ancient archaeological finds, we see that the that these men wore what we would call the pointed sorcery hats and flowing robes. And there was probably some great pomp and ceremony when they came into town and they come into town now and they say in verse two, where is he who is born king of the Jews? For we saw his star, in other words, his blazing forth in the east and have come to worship him. Now, it's also interesting to note that falling stars and comets always indicated to these people that it was time to depose the king. So the kings always lived in constant fear of a falling star. And all of this adds to the humor of this passage. It's such an understatement when it says in verse three, and when Herod the king heard it, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Again, are you beginning to get the scene? And to make matters worse, history tells us that many of Herod's troops were out of town at that time on a mission. So Herod felt very vulnerable. So what do wicked people do when their selfish ambition, their jealous Hatred for anybody else is suddenly threatened. Well, they angrily scheme against God and consult with the kingdom of darkness, which is exactly what he did. He went to the chief priests and scribes to get help. In verse four, it says that he began to inquire. By the way, the grammar of that text would indicate that he was constantly asking. He was constantly asking, what's going on here? Where is this king? Where was this blazing forth? Why didn't we see it? All of these types of things was going through his mind. This would have been his version of an amber alert at that time. I'm sure he had hourly briefings. Have you found the king yet? Now, here we see the story unfold before us in light of this context. And we look at the three typical responses to Jesus, the Christ, hatred, hypocrisy, and worship. First of all, let's think about hatred. Herod, of course, is the poster child of hatred of Christ. 
the symbol of the wealthy political and social elite of every culture that hate Christ, people that are blinded by pride and selfish ambition and will do anything they possibly can to destroy Christ. And we see that in our society. People that are doing everything they possibly can can to, for example, just take Christmas off the calendar. Maybe keep Christmas in terms of all of the material types of things that we can do and the booze parties and all of that, but certainly take Christ out of Christmas. And we need to look no further than the liberal element in our culture. Organizations like the ACLU, again, I call them the anti-Christian legal union. And we see these types of people exhausting themselves, trying to erase Christmas from the public psyche, along with every reminder of the true and the living God, our creator and our sovereign Lord. So still today we have people saying, as they did in Luke 19:14, we do not want this man to reign over us. And Herod had access to the truth from the scribes, but he resented it. No doubt he was aware from the scribes, because certainly they would have been aware of the prophecy in Numbers 24:17, where we were told that a, that a star would come forth from Jacob, a koshav in Hebrew, a blazing forth, a shining forth. Again, a reference, we believe, to the Shekinah. No doubt he had heard of the glorious Shekinah, the presence of God, that ineffable display of divine glory uh, all throughout the Old Testament. And no doubt he had heard a few months ago that these shepherds were running around telling everybody that they saw the glory and they went to a place where supposedly the king was born. And like all men Herod would have within him, as all people do that hate Christ, the knowledge of God, because God has made it evident within them, Romans 1.19, God has sovereignly infused the evidence of his existence in our very nature, through reason and through conscience. But this is indicative of the unregenerate. Romans 3, for example, tells us that none seek after God. It goes on to say that their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And certainly this would describe Herod and all that he would symbolize. How different it would have been if Herod had understood Psalm 112, verse 1 and also 7, where we read, How blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments, for he will not fear evil tidings. His heart is steadfast, trusting in the Lord. But like all men and women hardened by pride and unbelief, Herod's love for himself motivated his hatred for God. And such is always the mark of a fool, a fool who will ultimately have an eternity in hell to shake his fist in the face of the God he hates. But we see another group of people here, the hypocrites, symbolized by the priests and the scribes, the religious hypocrites, the spiritually elite, as I like to call them, of, of any culture, of any society, those who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, those who are convinced of their own religious system, their own self-righteousness. They place their confidence in that and their own human works. Now, friends, be careful. Don't immediately think of apostate Judaism of that day or even of the pagan religions like Islam or Buddhism or Hinduism 
or even the cults like Mormonism or the Jehovah's Witnesses. Nor would I have you think of the apostate systems of Christianity, like Roman Catholicism and the mystical extremes of Pentecostalism and so forth. Because, friends, we see this very strain of hypocrisy in mainstream contemporary evangelicalism. Think about it. Like the chief priests who had access to the word of God, who even had the testimony of others who had seen the light of God and the light of his presence. Many Christians today are very religious, but they really know nothing of who Jesus really is. They may fill up churches. They may be involved in religious activities, but they really have no desire to seek him. Their lives do not reflect the living Christ. They do not go hard after him and carefully discover more of who he is through the examination of his word. You know, I hear every week through a phone call or through an email, and sometimes it's more than once a week, people from different parts of the country especially as our listening audience has been expanded through the Internet, people lamenting over churches where they go and they they have uh, drama and some emotional period of, of mood altering music. And then suddenly they'll have a 15 minute sermonette filled with humor and ludicrous anecdotes and a few spiritual platitudes and some cliches. And, of course, the typical plea for money, but nothing that speaks to their soul. No desire to really know Christ. And those who are in leadership tend to resent anyone who would challenge them to do so. So they lament over churches and church services where they really never grow in the grace and the knowledge of Christ. It's just kind of an entertainment time. It's kind of a social club. And so the people grow up with no discernment, no measurable spiritual growth. In churches that never even discipline sin. Folks, this is hypocrisy. In fact, Jesus said in Luke 12, 1, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. In fact, in Matthew 16, 12, Jesus gives a, a further commentary on what he meant by that, because he says there that 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 the leaven of their hypocrisy was the doctrine that they taught. You see, you can never separate hypocrisy from doctrine. The two go together because the the, the issue here in, in the text is that simply the, the leaven influences dough, the dough in bread. And likewise, the perverted doctrine of religious externalism and and legalism influenced the Jews. It corrupted them. It produced hypocrisy. And the same is true in apostate Christianity where the metastasizing corruption of hypocrisy through the leaven of corrupt doctrine continues to destroy the church and dishonor Christ. Let me give you a couple of examples. If you have a church where the whole of Scripture is not taught with authority and with clarity, where the word of God is not important, where it's considered to be too offensive and you need to be more sensitive to the unsaved people, then... You basically have a doctrine that is contrary to the word of God that would say that we should not be ashamed of the gospel of Christ. And you end up producing a crowd, not a church. A church is to be the pillar in the support of the truth, not a place for entertainment. If you have pulpits filled with men who have no training, 
who really have no discernible gifts and often lack integrity and maturity, then you have a doctrine that basically says we don't really agree with God's qualifications for a pastor teacher, that a pastor teacher needs to be a skilled expositor, one who preaches the whole counsel of God, who rightly divides the word of truth, who who contends earnestly for the for the faith, which is the body of divine revelation and holy scripture. We don't agree with uh, Paul's admonition to young pastor Timothy and all pastors in first Timothy four thirteen that you need to be careful to exposit the word of God. You need to apply the word of God and you need to systematically teach doctrine to the people. That type of errant thinking that errant doctrine will produce hypocrisy. If you have a church that refuses to discipline sin, that has uh, basically a disregard for the premium that Christ places upon the purity of his bride, his church, which he purchased with his own blood, not to mention the clear teaching of Scripture. If you have no discipline of sin, then basically you have a doctrine, even though it's a bad doctrine. It's a doctrine that that says something contrary to what the scriptures teach. And ultimately, it will produce hypocrisy. You show me a church that does not discipline sin, and I'll show you a church that little by little will produce more and more hypocrisy. The chief priests and the scribes had access to divine truth, but... They are much like many pastors, unfortunately, and many people in churches that resent the word of God and have no real desire to know what it says and to apply it to their life because ultimately they're ashamed of the gospel. And friends, this is the type of wickedness that God abhors. In fact, he has reserved his most stinging rebukes for hypocrisy. Charles Spurgeon has said it so well. I remember the first time I read this, it really gripped my heart. Here's what he has to say regarding hypocrisy. Mr. Hypocrite, I see an item here where you usually forget. It is this, that despite your profession, God abhors you. And if there is one man more than another who stinks in the nostrils of Jehovah, it is such as thou art. Thou miserable pretender. There shall be a special place reserved for thee amongst the damned. Think, man, what shall be thy misery when thy secret deeds of iniquity are read before an assembled universe and men and angels under one unanimous hiss against thee. What shall it be when the mask is torn off thee, when the masquerade of thy hypocrisy is done and thou art stripped naked to thy shame? To be exposed of all, to be despised of all. What sayest thou to this? Shalt thou go from thy deaconship or from thy ministry to be among the devils in hell? Shalt thou go from the sacramental table to drink the sulfurous cup of torment? Shalt thou descend from the song of the sanctuary and from the house of God to the abode of fiends and to the wailing of the damned? Yes, thou shalt, as sure as this word is true, if thou goest on in thy hypocrisy, death shall find thee out and hell shall be thy doom. For the hope of the hypocrite is as the spider's web soon swept away. And where is he when God taketh away his hope? Well, finally, we have another group of people 
illustrated here by the Magi. But might I say a Magi that were radically different than many of their colleagues, because as you will see, these Magi believed in the living God and were devout and righteous men. Magi who, according to verse 11, ultimately fell down and worshipped him. And the Magi, of course, would illustrate and symbolize the people in a culture, the small group in a culture that genuinely worship the true and the living God. There's six things I want to show you here very briefly. Six observations about the Magi. First of all, I noticed that they had a desire to pay homage to King Jesus because they knew precisely who he was. So there was a desire there. They knew that he was their Lord and Savior. You know, folks, whenever you see people with no real desire to worship him and by 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 worship, I mean, they have no fear. They have no reverential awe of God. They have no love for him. They have no desire to be obedient and and to live a life of self-denial for his glory. Whenever you see those kind of people, rest assured that they either do not know who he is or they don't care. You know, all week long as a pastor, I'm immersed in the sewage of human iniquity. And at the same time, as best I can, I try to be absorbed in the things of God. And as I prepare to preach every Sunday, I can smell the smoke of hell, so to speak. And I pray for the lost and I commit myself to faithfully proclaiming the word of God as his messenger. And many of you will join me, I'm sure, during the week. In that every waking moment that we live, we praise God for his saving grace and for his mercy. And we agonize over those who simply refuse to bow the knee to Christ and to embrace his indescribable gift. And it's hard to understand, isn't it? It's hard to understand why so many people hate the Lord of glory. And so many are blinded by their hypocrisy. But true worshipers have a desire to know Christ. For example, they don't get up on Sunday morning and say, oh, rats, it's Sunday again. I guess I've got to go and worship Jesus. True worshipers will have a desire to know Christ. And the Magi illustrated that, didn't they? Secondly, they lived in anticipation of his glorious revelation. Now, think about this. They, they were in awe of the glory of God, undoubtedly. And obviously, they lived in anticipation of his, of his coming. And the reason I say this is, as I think about it, these men were not dumbfounded when they saw the light of his glory in the east. They, they didn't stand around and say, my goodness, what, what is this brilliant light? What, what's going on here? No, because they had been prepared through Daniel many, many years earlier. And obviously they had to have been God-fearing men because they knew precisely where to go and what to do. They were living in anticipation of his glorious revelation. And this is such a powerful picture of, of, of divine sovereignty and salvation. And I talked about this at length last week. Isn't it interesting, again, how that God will reveal the light of his glory to the humble, yet he will conceal it from the proud. So many of the people, even back where they were from, didn't see the light, but they did. They knew precisely where to go. They were living in anticipation and they went to Bethlehem. And of course, it's interesting 
that Herod didn't see it. That's why he was so troubled. And later on in verse seven, he says when, that he calls them the Magi and ascertain from them the time the star appeared. In other words, when did you and the, the grammar would indicate he's saying, when did you see the blazing forth of this brilliant light? And by implication, what he's saying is, I didn't see it. Nobody else saw it. And we talked about it even with the shepherds. Nobody else saw what the shepherds saw. But God revealed it to the humble. And he did this to these men who were, I believe, living in anticipation of his glorious revelation. You see, the Magi, these men undoubtedly longed to see Christ. They wanted to know him. They wanted to worship him. They wanted to serve him. You know, as Christians, we have the light of his word and we are to radiate his glory that men may see him through us. In fact, we are told in first Peter four fourteen that when you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because now listen to this. The spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. The idea of resting there in the original language means that that, that something is giving relief or giving refreshment. And what is it that's giving refreshment? It's the presence of the living God. And many times it, in, throughout Scripture, it is revealed in this resplendent, brilliant light of his Shekinah that, that manifests the glorious uh, presence of God throughout Scripture. But what he's saying here is literally the glory of the living God will rest upon believers who are suffering for the sake of Christ, who love the glory of his appearing, who love to live for him. In fact, we can be like Stephen, even in the midst of great persecution. You will recall just before he was to be stoned, he was defending his faith. And the wicked leaders looked at him in Acts 6 and verse 15, and they said that his face was like the face of an angel. May I ask you, do you radiate his glory? Do you live in anticipation of his glorious return? Do you long to see his glory? Or do you just kind of set all of that aside until you come to church on Sunday and then you do the pretend game? You know, Paul describes a glorious unveiling that will occur someday when Christ returns, when we as his children will share in his glory. In Romans 8, verse 19, and then also in verse 21, he says, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not what? They're not worthy to be compared with what? With the glory that is to be revealed to us for the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. That's the revealing of us in glory at his second coming, the scripture teaches. And at that time, verse 21 goes on to say that it will be at that time when he when it will be set free. In other words, creation will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Folks, we need to live with this in mind. The glory of his revelation and the glory that we will share in when he is revealed. Undoubtedly, these magi not only anticipated the glory they were privileged to see, but longed for the glory that they now share. Isn't that a fascinating thought? So they desired to worship Christ. They lived in anticipation of his glory. And thirdly, they denied themselves to follow Jesus. Don't you know there was an enormous sacrifice that they had to make here? It had to have been a number of months to go from where they lived to get to Jerusalem. 
I know, having been on horseback so much, especially in difficult terrain, if you make 30 miles in a day, you've accomplished a lot. And that's about all a horse wants as well. So they persevered in travel. They went many miles. Why would they do that? Why would they leave their home for undoubtedly a year or more to go to the king? Simply because nothing else in life matters than knowing Christ. That's the priority. And God supplied all of their needs. He will never abandon us as we seek after him. He's going to give us strength to persevere. And even when they got to Jerusalem, even when they saw the blind hypocrisy of those who did not who did not see him and who did not care to see him, that did not dissuade the wise men. They persevered. They were undaunted by human pride and indifference of the religious elite who, know, who, who, who probably said to them something like, hey, we didn't see anything. I don't know. I think you're wasting your time. You know, perseverance and self-denial are the foremost marks of a true Christian, are they not? As Jesus has declared in Luke 9, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself. Literally means to renounce yourself, to abandon yourself, your former self. Deny yourself and take up his cross daily and follow after me. For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. So they had a desire to know Christ. They lived in anticipation of his glorious revelation. They denied themselves to follow Jesus. And fourthly, I noticed that the star drew them to Jesus. It did not drive them. You know, God forces no one. But he makes the light of his glory obvious to everyone. Romans 1 makes this abundantly clear. This is why man is without excuse because of reason and conscience, as I said earlier. You know, I'm sickened when I hear preachers and evangelists browbeating sinners to somehow make a decision for Christ. When they employ every conceivable manipulative technique to get people to believe in Jesus. Historically, by the way, that method of evangelism has proven to not only be tragically deficient, but woefully unbiblical. Paul said that I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God in, unto salvation. Not my techniques or my persuasive words or powers. You see, what we must do, dear friends, is unleash the gospel of Christ with clarity. And when we do that, it will always do one of two things. It will either save the lost or it will judicially seal them in their unbelief. Indeed, God drives no one to come to the light. But rather, Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. An irresistible compelling of a sovereign God. And he says, and I will raise him up on the last day. John six forty four. Well, then, fifthly, we also see that the light rested upon Christ Jesus alone. As I was thinking about this, I was fascinated with it. I thought, you know, we look here at the text and we see first the, 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 the light shines brightly and, and, and then it disappears for a while. And, and, and the Magi are trying to figure out, oh, where do we go from here? And then it blazes forth once again and it leads them finally to the abode of the Lord Jesus. And it stops there. Think of this. There's no reason for it to shine on anything else. And the point as I think about it is simply this. 
Beloved, our gaze must never look beyond the incarnate Christ of the church. All other attractions are distractions and beyond the illumination of his glory. Our lives need to remain fixed and focused upon him. We need to constantly be reassessing our relationship with him. We need to be constantly pointing our spouses and our children and our grandchildren to the object of our faith, who is Christ. We need to be constantly assessing the motivations for why we do things, and it should be Christ. We should constantly be recognizing that the love of our heart should be Christ. The theme of our song should be Christ. And with regard to the church, everything must begin and must end with Christ. You shouldn't come to hear me or come to hear the music or to be entertained or to enjoy some social outlet. And as a pastor, my subject subject must always be the glory and the majesty of Christ. I desire to only bring men to Christ, not to the church. I want nothing to do with a church where Christ is not exalted, where the word is where his word is not 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 honored, where, where his gospel is somehow watered down. Beyond recognition, where people are allowed to live in their sin, where his bride becomes nothing more than an unfaithful harlot that embraces all manner of sin and philosophies of the world so that we become like an apostate church that Laodicea represented, where Christ is only outside and he's looking in and he's wanting to come in and to have fellowship. Well, then finally, we see that we need to learn from the wise men. Notice that they did not worship the light, but what it illumined. They didn't worship the light. You know, I think about our culture today. If we were to see a light like that, you know what would happen? People would knock themselves out to be following the light. Not what it's pointing to. Man, did you see the light? See, the point is, they're not going to see the light. Because they don't really want what the light is pointing to. And again, the Magi rejoiced when the star reappeared, betraying the desperation of soul that they had in wanting to pursue the Savior King. And then when they came to the house and the light of the the glorious Shekinah is above the house, they're not concerned about the illumination. They're not concerned about the light. They want to go inside. They want to see Jesus. The Shekinah was an indescribably beautiful light, undoubtedly. And it was awesome to behold, but it was pointing to the true light of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, people today are so fascinated with sensational things. They they are just completely caught up in, for example, mood altering music in churches. They're looking for the next miracle worker, the next faith healer, the next fantastic testimony. They love to see. Mysterious images on tortillas and grilled cheese sandwiches, as we've looked at. And they're fascinated with bizarre and unexplained phenomena. But friends, true worshipers will only fixate their longings and their affections upon Christ. So said simply, if something doesn't exalt Christ, we don't need to have anything to do with it. I have a sign up here on my desk. On this sacred desk, on this pulpit that says, we would see Jesus. That was given to me when I first became the pastor of this church. Because it was a reminder that I had given to them that this was what they need to have and the, the people need to have in their mind when they come. They need to see Jesus, not me. I need to get out of the way. 
You come to hear Jesus, not me, not the musicians, not to be dazzled by some floor show, not to be wowed by some fantastic claims of of health and wealth and prosperity or to be fascinated with some concocted mystical experience that we can conjure up for you. None of that exalts Christ. What exalts Christ is the knowledge of the truth, the knowledge of the Son of God, Ephesians 4. The word of God that renews the mind and causes a metamorphosis to occur where we become who we really are on the inside. Those clothed in the righteousness of Christ so that we can radiate his glory so that the world can see. And that comes through a humble submission to the word of the living God. So we must act like the kingmakers from the east and we must say, where is he born king of the Jews? Not where is that incredible light? And when he reveals himself to us, we must do what they did. Verse 11, they fell down and worshiped him and opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. Another precious thought, as I think about it, a worshipful heart will inevitably be a giving heart, will it not? Absolutely. So I challenge you this Christmas season. Make it your priority, dear friends, to pay homage to the Savior and King. Live in anticipation of his glorious return. Deny yourself to follow him, even if it takes you to a cross. And rejoice over his sovereign grace that drew you to himself. And make sure that especially in this season, you worship Christ and Christ alone. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the glorious truth of your word. Thank you for your spirit that causes it to find lodging in our heart. We pray that it will bear much fruit. We pray especially for that soul that might be within the sound of my voice that needs to bow the knee to Christ. Maybe they hate you right now, as Herod did. Maybe they're living in hypocrisy. Lord, whatever it is, I pray that your convicting work will melt their heart. And they will embrace Christ as Savior and Lord. Thank you for this time. Thank you for ministering to our hearts this morning. For it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harrell's messages, please visit cvctn.org or call 615-746-0113.